This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and become a patron starting at one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, free merchandise, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 43rd episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our series on giving voice to the voiceless, we will be talking with anthropologist Chiara Coco, who will be discussing with us today about the stigmas and potential discrimination surrounding menstruation and breastfeeding in academia and the workplace. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself, Kiara. Would you like to start? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, uh, I thought a lot about what drink I was going to have. Uh, yeah, I ended up having a chamomile tea. Oh, nice. And also, it's just before lunchtime. I was going to say, doesn't that make you pee? That's the right one to have. And came back, so hopefully... I'll be fine. Um, but yeah, so some of my old tea, uh, I didn't feel like having uh, my second copy of the day just yet. Um, yes, yeah, so about me, uh, what can I say? Yeah, as you said, uh, I'm an anthropologist and still completing my uh, PhD uh, mm. in cultural anthropology, uh, researching festivals, um, uh, ethnography and art ethnography of festivals. Uh, but I am also a postdoc a postdoctoral research uh, associate for the uh, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Caucus here at Herio Watch University in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, um, researching menstruation in the workplace. So random. How? Firstly, how how are you able to do finish a doctorate and do a postdoc? at the same time. Like, I didn't even think that was possible. Uh, no, it, it is. Uh, yeah, obviously, it is. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually not that uh, unusual to be, you, okay. you need to be at your completing uh, stage mm. uh, of, of your of your doctorate. So yeah, I, I've done my my data collection and, and everything. I'm just writing it up. So I'm, I'm submitting the easy by stuff, the end of Just the writing it, you know, just no yeah. worries. <laughs> been a ride but because I've been working uh, in the meanwhile and also because I've become a mother during my PhD then mm. uh, things got uh, a bit slowed down uh, mm. as we might discuss later on and yeah but then I, I got this opportunity and, and and I took it and it's great to be to be involved in this project I'm really enjoying my my postdoc and uh, it's actually helping me out somehow also to kind of be even more motivated to finish my, my PhD uh, as soon as. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. You got to make that big money. That's really what it boils down to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and pay back those loans about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I know we had talked uh, briefly before we did the recording, um, but something I think it might be worth like talking about, you know, for listeners purposes. Um, uh, one thing I'd, I'd mentioned to you is that occasionally I get pitches for ideas and I, some, some of them are like immediate yeses. Some of them are like, Ooh. and then occasionally you get one where you think I am so out of my element, but I'd like to definitely have a chat. And yours was definitely one of those where I was like, I feel out of my element, 
but I definitely want to have a chat. So we had a chat and then I realized, wait a second, why do I feel out of my element if I have menstruated? (laughs) Clearly, I've had two kids, had to breastfeed, I breastfed both of them. Um, I've had to juggle trying to work, write a book, you know, uh, figure out a new career path and 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 just a multitude of things. And then I realized, well, holy crap, like I'm a poster child of what <laughs> this would be. And and then the readings that you you sent over, of which I had no idea how vast menstruation. First, I didn't even know menstruation studies was a thing. And then yeah. secondly, to find that menstruation studies is like an explosion of information absolutely blew my mind. And in talking about this, I realized that when I tried having conversations with family members about these topics, um, my husband, who who had some experience working at hospitals, was actually quite comfortable with it because he's dealt with bodily fluids of a different matter, if I can put it that way. Um, but for other people in my family, um, they were a bit um uncomfortable Mm. and i think we should dive into that element of of a what this topic is about and then b why why it can be uncomfortable for people to talk about so um maybe what we could do is start off with the first question um which is what initially got you interested in studying the effects of menstruation and maternity support or the potential lack thereof in academia and industry yeah, uh, where to start, really? Because uh, as I said, I was doing a, I am doing a PhD in something that is apparently very uh, unrelated to this. Uh, let's say that I've I've always been interested in um, equality, diversity, uh, and inclusion. Uh, I studied uh, sign language both in Italy and here uh, in Britain, um, and kind of looked and experience and seeing like the kind of barriers and marginalization of uh, of uh, people like in education for example then yeah i uh, i decided to just uh, study um to do a master's in cultural resource management here at Harry Watt and there i kind of became familiar uh, with like gender theory, feminism, and uh, really uh, also trying like understanding more about marginalization and, and equality, and yeah, just uh, la- last year I I got a job in in a project led by uh, Professor Kate Sang, uh, who was also uh, the PI of this current project I'm working uh, I'm working at and. It was about disability inclusive science careers, and that's where I really delved into marginalization barriers, challenges for uh, disabled people, and how really understanding how like um, the issue shifts from the actual individual to the environment that is disabling rather than the uh, the condition, uh, and that so applies to to menstruation and menstrual health in general, um, as well as um, perimenopause, uh, breastfeeding, motherhood, um, and and other and other things. Um, and then yes, there was this opportunity to to join the um, the caucus, the uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion caucus which is really broadly looking at uh like how to create accessible inclusive and diverse uh, careers in the research and innovation uh, ecosystems 
so includes in academia, uh, of course. And one of the work streams uh, looks at the life cycle and how it relates to the career cycle and how these two interact. So the life events and the work events interact with each other and how they affect each other. And my uh, my work and my focus is looking at menstrual health in particular, uh, with the aim of basically creating workplaces and careers that are accessible where menstruators really and uh, can can thrive. Mm-hmm. And what got me interested, like what's not to be interested about, is something that relates to me as well as much as you said it, you know. Uh, it's something that I experienced myself by being obviously uh, a woman, a menstruator, uh, I've been pregnant, I gave birth, I breastfed, and that all interacted with my with my workplace. But you don't tend to look at it that way. You never think about the correlation. And mm-hmm. by doing the work with disability and then delving more into these interactions, then I found the link and I wanted to explore it better. Mm. Yeah. And I think something that, you, you know, has come up in the writing quite a bit. And I think you you definitely tapped into it is this um, big idea of disruption. Mm. You know, um, one of the things that I've tried explaining to to my parents and they, they have a really hard time grasping this is the fact that most of the people I know of my generation don't have children at all. Um, oh. Some of it is situational. I'd say most of it is because they genuinely don't want to have kids. And um, I think that that disruption element, I'm sure there's more to it, but I do feel like that disruption element could be a potential factor, whether it's a disruption for them in terms of their career progression or potentially a disruption to to their colleagues around them. Um, But I do think that that ties into this idea that we'll tap into in terms of stigma and the effects that it might have in terms of our relationship with the work environment and vice versa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could, um, why do you think, I mean, we've talked about this idea of disruption, but are there any other reasons you can think of where there might be stigma in the workplace around menstrual health, perimenopause and breastfeeding and how that could potentially relate to gender inequalities at work? Well, there is stigma in the workplace because that that's, there is stigma in society. Uh, we you made the example of talking to your own family and uh, have, having in face discomfort from them, uh, which means that menstrual health uh, is still seen as a taboo uh, mm. topic. It's not the kind of conversation that you would normally have with a group of people at the dinner table mm. uh, because uh, because. For, for many reasons, I suppose, because it involves uh, bodily fluids uh, that are not uh, pleasant to talk about, uh, I suppose, because it's gendered, it's something that relates to women. Uh, and the interesting thing is that it does relate to women and it makes them, in a sense, it is also a signifier of their ability and our ability to reproduce, which is very much looked up. You know, it's something that is very much valued, but looking into the actual um, condition, then that's that's uncomfortable. So it's something that obviously goes um, in contrast with that sort of like kind of ideal body that um, the woman also must have. Like she she has to be 
uh, in a sense, um, fertile and uh, reproduce and give birth, etc. But also she needs to be perfect and uh, flawless. And well, aren't uh, we clearly? <laughs> <laughs> we still are. Yeah. But yeah, and and so there is uh, a lot of like this um, stigma that is. Uh, cultural and even if you think about uh, how for example menstrual products are advertised and uh, it's just uh, always aimed at concealing uh, the blood and uh, silencing the menstruation you know and that's something that needs to be obviously addressed and counter counteracted on. Mm, I think that's interesting, this idea of, of the way it's advertised. I mean, there was an there was an advert I saw uh probably within the past six months. I can't tell you exactly what, what company it was. Um but anyway, the point is when you see the adverts, you'll see uh a maxi pad and normally it's blue. It's and blue, then it'll, yeah. it'll say, oh, you know, it's super absorbent. And they give a little twisteroo and you know, look, none, none of this magical blue liquid comes out. And this time it was red. And yeah. I and I was like, Bleh. and then I'm like, wait a second. That's what it's for. Like, why? Yeah. I mean, technically, that is actually its purpose. We yeah. don't and spew out blue liquid. So yeah. And we think how subversive is that? And it's like how subversive. And it's like, it's actually it should be blue. It, it, sorry, it should be red. It's, it's blood. And we don't talk about it. even it's not even named blood especially in relation to menstrua menstruation is just uh, what people don't want to hear or see or talk about. But yeah, I remembered the ad. That's the thing. Yeah. I yeah. Still rem- so it clearly was effective advertising. Still can't remember the brand name, but the point is I was like, whoa. Yeah, so yeah, there was a shift. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, to talk about it more, to normalize more. Yeah. I think yeah. it's an Australian, it could have been an Australian um campaign or something i think but yeah I, I, yeah <laughs> but, um yeah I, I think i want to say something else about uh stigma yeah there's also like a uh, cultural and religious beliefs uh linked to menstruating mm. women and like the impurity uh still related to that to the blood um in some cultures they like uh, menstruating women cannot enter churches for examples or sacred places or mm. uh, if you want to shift it to like um secularized um environments actually uh i've, I've heard that uh, actually the, there were some labs where uh women couldn't um the women couldn't access when when menstruated because of uh temperature like um yeah the reasoning behind was that like menstruated women has uh or menstruated people have a higher uh, temperature that could possibly contaminate uh whatever material or uh, matter they were studying but that that is proven to be like not uh accurate at all and completely um, Sounds like X Men. I'm like, oh, you're period girl. Sorry, you can't come in here. This is kryptonite for you. Period yeah. girl's gonna have to stand outside. Exactly. So you know, <laughs> and and that's what, like finding always kind of a justification uh, for 
yeah, if you think about it, just women uh, to be marginalized and uh, excluded. So it's funny. It's not, it's not funny, but it's interesting you say that. So when I was talking to my mom yesterday about this topic and um, mom, if you're listening, sorry, but I'm putting you in here. Um, she she was she was a bit like about the, the whole thing. And then and then we we worked our way through it. I like to think we worked our way through it because I said, well, why are you like, why are you feeling a little uncomfortable about this? And then the more we talked about it, I think the more she realized, like, oh, wait, like, why am I uncomfortable about this? And I think it's this internalized idea of what is air quote accepted and not accepted, what is appropriate and not appropriate for the workplace, right? Yeah. And she said to me, she goes, remember that book you read years ago by Anita Diamond? Uh, she's a Jewish author. She wrote a book called The Red Tent. And it is, if you haven't read the book, highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. And it is a, I guess you could say a fable. Um, it's a sort of, she took a, a small line out of uh, a story in the Old Testament, and then she expanded it into this incredible novel. And the red tent is supposed to be the place where nomadic Jewish women would reside for seven days while they were on their period. And it was sort of like the female headquarters where the woman would gather, they do each other's hair, um, they'd take care of the children. But this red tent was sort of their their home. Their, this is their their place where they could reside in you know certain periods of the month. And throughout the, the course of the story, this particular woman she talks about talks about growing up in the tent as a child. And then um, eventually having children and then eventually becoming uh, a midwife and the experiences of what it's like, you know, bringing children into the world and that demarcation element of something as simple as just tent material um, actually carried so much more behind it. Mm. Um, it. It was a very powerful book. And I think when I read it, I was probably in my late teens, early 20s. Um, and it it. it made me view the cycle of life and the, and the the role of women in a very different way that I hadn't expected otherwise. So um, I think that this idea of, of um, gender demarcations and roles is clearly something that has just existed for a millennia as long as we have been alive. Yeah. Um, which kind of ties into this next element, which is just so bizarre to me, why menstruation is not normally considered a public health issue within the workplace. Um, and maybe we could dive into that a little bit more. I want to be aware of the fact that there are people who have endometriosis and polycystic ovarian sy syndrome, but why it's sort of a quieted element within the world of public health. It's just, it, it really goes back to the, um, uh, to the, Stigma, the tabooization of of menstrual health, and because it is so gendered, and here I really want to also um, just uh, uh, underline the fact that me menstruation and menstrual health does just not relate to women, but it also applies mm. to trans, non-binary sure, sure, people, course. and those who um, were assigned female. At at birth, but don't identify with that. And uh, but by being so gendered, uh, it is always something that tends to be dismissed, even like the pain. So you said endometriosis, for example, endometriosis, 10%, uh, at least 10, 10% of the people menstruate suffer from endometriosis. And it's still a condition that is 
mythical, like medical, like the medical um, uh, personnel. Like even in the in medicine, there is there is have not been major breakthrough through endometriosis because it was always being dismissed as like, oh, you're making a fuss out of your pain and hysteria, uh, uh, hysteria related to that as well. And, um, you know, even yeah, right now, it's still so hard to diagnose. And also endometriosis does not just relate to um, the genital area, but you, you can find um, actually in other tissues of your body, you can find it in your lungs as well. Whoa. You know, so it's a condition that still needs to be explored and it, it is so debilitating that, mm. um, yeah, uh, but still, yeah, we don't know uh, enough about it. And it's because so we've been dismissed. Uh, and I, I argue it is because of its gendered nature. If I could, and I, again, I, I like to play devil's advocate not to start fights, but just because I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. Um, what made you come to that conclusion? The structural, structural inequalities and uh, mm. uh, like in different levels of like society, like from families to the workplace to the broader um, organizations, it's always been male-centered. So we, we still live in a patriarchal system. So where mm. the norm is always the kind of able uh, male body, therefore was gendered as the other. Um, and therefore, whatever relates to that is othered and often dismissed. So obviously, like this kind of a bit theoretical, but uh, in practice, you can see it in like the gender pay gap, but you can see it in uh, the glass ceiling at work, for example. Um, and yeah, you can you can see it everywhere, really. Uh, and by listening to people lived experiences mm. you hear how much uh like gender plays a role into how you are uh you are seen you're treated in the workplace as well as in other uh, in other organizations and yet what i think is really interesting um and i know you and i have talked about this at length outside the podcast is this this stigmatization this poor treatment, shall we say, of some women. Um, actually, the, the bullies are other women yeah. in some cases. And I think that that's really interesting as we talk about this idea of the patriarchy. But I think what I'm learning from my personal experience is that there are quite a few women who have been bullied by senior women who sort of have absorbed or maintained this sort of old school way of thinking and they punish other women for being women. It's almost kind of like, so what? Like, what's the big deal? And, yeah. and I found that really interesting because on the one hand, I would assume, okay, maybe I would get that from somebody who has never been through what I went through. Okay. Sometimes you just don't know unless you've been through it. Okay. Um, but for somebody of my same gender to 
almost be more dismissive and more disrespectful and more hurtful. And and, and in the research that you had sent me, there were other women in forums who were basically like, sort yourselves out. I had to sort myself out. So why are you making a big fuss out of that? I mean, that that blows my mind. You know, I think we, we would want to move past this, but there's almost like this 1950s mentality in some respects. Um, and I, I'd just be curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally see what, what, what you're saying and, uh, and understand it. And I, I can't say it with awareness that I experienced that myself, but, uh, through some of like, um, some data collection that we are like going through, uh, just now, actually, uh, this, this has come up. Uh, mm-hmm. This has come up from people's uh, lived experiences, and uh, um, and it is a lot of time women themselves uh, like putting hurdles on other women because of the different experiences. So yeah, like a senior woman in uh, could say, you know, uh, I've I've been through it, so you can do it. You know, and mm. if you if if you're not able to, then you're not enough. Or, or weak, some some women, right? or you're weak, and some some women d- haven't had menstruation because we also need to understand that, like menstruation, for example, is um, it's quite of a natural uh, occurrence, uh, you know, and like it doesn't have to be necessarily problematic, you know. Mm. And some women don't experience problems of any kind. They've got maybe a three uh, three days uh, period. That sounds and lovely. It's even, <laughs> and it's not even that's never that been my healthy. life. <laughs> they don't experience like um, pain, uh, painful periods, or things like that, and they're fine. And they're ex- they base because of like the fact that we don't talk about it. Not even among women, you know, especially in an environment of such as the workplace that is professional and things like that are not deemed to be professional. They're quite, they're intimate. They're your thing. Like, it's your thing. And, and actually, in Italian, we've got the expression, I've got my things there. Or the musicals. That means uh, I've, got, I've got my period. You know, so it's your thing. Then you base... Uh, menstruation on your own experience so if your experience was fine then you tend to be dismissive you know on other other women and you might you might think oh yeah they're just attention seekers so many yes. times i read that you know yeah again with endometriosis or other or uh, being like difficult you've been difficult you've got pms you're hysterical you know like you're rational because maybe that person never experienced that and instead of actually understanding and empathizing in a sense because there's not much knowledge because it's not discussed it's not been there's not education on menstrual health Mm. at any level of like not in school properly like we're starting and that's great to see that but it's not enough yet and if we're talking about people now in senior positions which I sh- I'm sure those women have have had their own struggles and they have to fight in a very male-dominated environment. So they've had their own struggle. And because the environment is so inaccessible and it's so patriarchal, then 
what happens that oftentimes the women internalize that and that's their way to to thrive um which and is really almost sad. like <laughs> it is sad but i think there's also this idea that i had to suffer so you're gonna have to suffer it's almost also, like a rite of passage exactly uh, and the, yeah yeah no rather recently i've read something that was really nice where i must put it somewhere in my notes but uh, it was on the lines of like rather than uh you know i had to fight it so that you won't need to and you mm. you know i cannot lead the path for you i free the path from the hurdles for you i just add more because you need to see what i've been through you know yeah it's a yeah. Kind of a survival uh, instinct and discourse that is very, very toxic. Mm, absolutely, um, and I think you know if we talk about this idea of taboo. So, um, saying who you work with, um, you sent me this fascinating article. Um, she and several of her colleagues um, wrote a paper looking at what they call blood work, and mm-hmm. maybe we could talk a little bit about that as well. But in the article. Um, Sang and her colleagues state that the cultural code of menstruation has genuinely been one of, as you've mentioned, silence and concealment compounded by an internalized taboo and feelings of shame and disgust. Um, what effect do you think this has had on uh, women in the workplace just in terms of their daily daily life and, and, and day-to-day experiences? Yeah, the effect of like excluding them from the workplace and career path you know these um are issues that um are in the workplace because they were before in in schools and they were in the families and they do reflect uh, into the workplace so for for a person who does have for example heavy periods and bleeds heavily and is scared to leak through because it's absolutely disgusting for people around her uh, or around them to see to see them bleeding, then that person might not be uh, choosing to do some uh, some work that, for example, take takes you away from toilet facilities and things like that, like field work, for example. Field work yeah. can often be so inaccessible. Uh, and I'm talking here about like the academia, for example, of you know, like a research innovation um, careers where you know, uh, personally, my, myself, and I'm like in the humanities, I had to be uh, uh, doing field work uh, in the streets and stuff without easy access to, to the toilets, but I was doing it like back home in like in a familiar environment where I could more or less um deal with it quite easily mm. but then I, i've seen like a read some article of like and we're actually gonna talk to them uh, next week i can't wait of uh, this group of researchers who do field work in the arctic <gasps> and how they oh, deal wow. with menstruation uh in in the polar <laughs> field you yeah, know i mean and, it's not like you just go to the shop you're like hey mr seal do you have some tampons <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so how to deal with that and uh because it's something that is not talked about in the first place and the workplace the field work the environment is not designed to accommodate that 
And because there is this internalized shame of it, of not talking about it, then it, it's a vicious cycle of like not mm. even pursuing any sort of career, let's say, that could potentially, you know, um, clash with your bodily needs. It's like basically if you want to succeed, you, you don't don't have to have a body or your body really needs to behave in a sort of like robotic way. <laughs> you know, this is not totally real. Well, I don't know. This, this experience talking about the Arctic made me think about an experience I went through years ago. I wasn't in the Arctic, but I was in the Alps. And um, I, <laughs> you probably know what this is like. If anybody's ever been skiing, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. So if you go skiing, you wear your entire wardrobe on your body. Like that is just the fact of life. You've got yeah. long underwear, regular underwear, two, at least two layers of socks, thick like overalls and the jacket and a and a hoodie and everything. You are the Michelin tire man. So I was I was skiing with my husband. I was like, I'm going to poo my pants. And it was like, I'm going to poo my pants now and we were on a mountain and i was like oh oh this is bad this is so bad so i'm like trying to skate as fast as i can and i find this hut and i was like i gotta go. i got i'm sweating i gotta go i gotta go so i take off my skis and i got my big boots on i'm like i'm like i'm gonna grab my pants and i get to the toilet and it's just a hole and i'm like i i can't poo in this this was designed by a man i i cannot poop in this and i have all of my stuff on i was like i gotta find another place toys and i was like i can't poop in this because i can't poop in this i got too much stuff on and i found another hut that thankfully had like a regular western toilet and i could do my thing but the amount of stress the amount of stress and i was like leave it to a man to design this because he just figured like whatever it's like i'm a dude i'm just you know, or or pee. Yeah. You can yeah, just, just do it. For anyway. women, yeah. There's a lot more that goes into this. And yeah. that wasn't even my period, you know? No. Yeah. I mean, and just, you were not even working, let's say. No. Like, you were not even performing a task that needed to be performed in a certain way. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You know, and it's something that we don't really think about, even yourself, but you haven't had this experience. I'm sure you never really reflected on it when like i was mad watched. i was i was like leave it to a man to dig a hole in the ground like i was just so mad yeah yeah no exactly and you see how yeah laces are just designed for certain types of body and the question you asked me before about the gender inequality that's where um that's what i mean you know like when you see that the environment is just not designed and it's gendered as well as this all the other um marginalized and protected characteristics like uh, disabled people and uh you know um or mothers and breastfeeding uh people you know um so you see how you know you're somewhere that is like where you don't fit you feel like you don't fit but it's actually the environment that is unfit if you know what yeah. i mean yeah. So um, that leads to the next thing. Uh, period leave. I yeah. have never heard of period leave. Could you tell us what that is and how it has been used in the workplace? Well, yeah, period leave is 
like some sort of policy that um, is put in place in a workplace organization that has the aim to, um, in a way, allow menstruating people to take a leave um, and it could be paid or unpaid, but take a leave of work uh, because they are menstruating. Okay. And has any institute ever done this before? So, yeah, there are there are uh, also like some actually at a national level, there are some countries that have implemented that as policy. Okay. Um, but there are there is a big debate around it as well. Uh, so there's like uh, pros or like um, you know people that are uh, openly and the reasoning behind actually putting that, them off uh, at a national level, uh, obviously, uh, and then yeah, those who are uh, openly uh, against them. So. There are two sides uh, of that. And if you like, in principle, like here in, you know, period leave is like, oh, yeah, it's a protection and, uh, you know, it's an accommodation. That's what like here in the UK, we talk about reasonable adjustment for, mm. for something. And that might be um, seen as a reasonable adjustment. Um, however, there are uh, several uh, drawbacks on on period on on period leave um yeah and, and what would those be if i could ask uh yeah so again uh the reason behind it is that like this protects women uh or people menstruate, uh giving them this layer of um accommodation However, you can argue that's uh, a gendered that's a, a gendered policy, and also you have to demonstrate that you are on your period somehow. So there's a matter oh, of like, oh, okay. of like, yeah. Uh, in in some cases, you need to kind of demonstrate that you're on your period. There have been uh, issues in some very controversial workplaces where, yeah, uh, women were or people were asked to just literally show that they were menstruating in order to 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 get the leave you have to disclose that to your manager that sometimes uh, is um a man or a not very understanding woman as we as we mentioned before wow. it could also uh it could be uh, in a sense also um encourage some sort of like resentment because it, it feels like a gender rule where it is applied to all women regardless he it also medicalizes uh and again problematizes menstruation which shouldn't be that way like we mm. said the menstruation metro uh helped and perimenopause as well and menopause because uh, also there's period leave there's menstrual health leave um something like that anyway that also include perimenopause and menopause um but they are uh so yeah these are some of the things yeah they, they can create resentment from like male colleagues for example can uh say that it can also discourage people to uh employ women for that reason because they need they need to add that if it was to be enforced so mm. you know there are uh quite a few and there's countries like i, I think it's japan I, I really don't want to make this wrong but the, because 
policies are, you know, they do reflect the cultural systems and beliefs. They were uh, established in the first place as a sort of like, again, protection of the woman who is seen as a hormone machine and has a, a you know reproductive machine and is a, in a sort of like that discourse of like you know menstruated women are very vulnerable and they need protections they need to take some days off which just encourages again stereotypes and assumptions on uh, on women or menstruating bodies. So th there are a few um, issues with that. And if in principle we can say it, it could it could be good to have in some sort of accommodations, but period leaves, there's not been actual evidence-based research that has proven their efficiency and their um, validity, if you know what I mean, and if it actually benefited those who are meant to, to protect. Mm, interesting. So how do these issues regarding menstruation in the workplace then also relate to breastfeeding women and how they are treated in industry? So I'd, I'd say that in a sense, they are quite similar because we are, again, talking about bodily fluids uh, and that's something that makes just people uh, uncomfortable. And actually doing this uh, research and I've been quite a few, like I've been doing quite a lot of like um, evidence reviews. So I've, I've been reading quite a lot of literature, uh, especially about menstrual health. Uh, and the fact that like, um, there's so much more about menopause than there is on menstruation just made me really uh, think about how uh, uncomfortable uh, still people are with, with blood and fluids. So it's not that menopause doesn't have like that sort of unpredictability. But it's almost but it like it's have, stopping. It, it just stops. It's drying you know? up. Yeah, it, it's like not anymore. And, uh, you know, the perimenopause is also an interesting moment because there's a lot of like unpredictability of uh, it could be mood, it could be the hot flushes and it could be a lot of other conditions, even uh, breakthrough bleeding or um, I don't know if it's called breakthrough, but anyway, just a sudden bleeding and uh, or heavy bleeding and unpredictability of the period at that point. So that's another stage. And that's not talked about as much as menopause and in terms of like breastfeeding then there's another um body fluid that is milk uh, and that's another another fluid that can appear uh, uh um, in an unpredictable ways and the leakiness and the messiness and the just disruption from the normal and it's idealized body. Like, it's like, ugh. even uh, at home, it's not nice, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's what it is. And that's like, you know, it, it's not great, maybe. I haven't no. experienced that myself. So I'm, no. I'm, I was pretty lucky that You're I very lucky. Yeah. yeah, I exclusively breastfed my daughter. Um, but it just established in a way that like I would produce exactly what she needed. So I, I never experienced that okay also i i took a year off for maternity leave and it was also uh still in like the kind of covid slash post lockdown 
mm-hmm. uh, period of time. So I, I wasn't really being at work. Uh, I didn't have to juggle breastfeeding and working. So that wasn't my experience, apart from when I went back to, to start my PhD again and I was straight to field work. And actually, I had to breastfeed during my field work. But again, I was at home like back home in Sardinia where I'm from, where I had my family around, I had places that I could. I also feel like they're a bit more comfortable around it. That's been, I mean, at least my experience in Italy, I just felt like people weren't. My experience, I can only base it off my experience, but I just felt like it was more uh, family, family. Friendly. Family, family friendly. Yeah. Then the UK. in some respects I mean I will say when I so when I brought my son so my son's a year and a half um I breastfed him until I was 11 or until he was 11 until I was 11 good lord um at 11 months and then but I just noticed um I didn't have to I didn't have to breastfeed him while we were there but we did have to bring milk and we had to bring like a lot of supplies and a, a good example uh we went to a museum we were in Florence and um, I was with some friends of mine who don't have children and they wouldn't let them bring, they wouldn't even let them bring water in. This was the academia to see the the David. And they said, sorry, you're going to have to leave your water there. We had an entire bag full of like baby wipes, water, milk, bottles. And they, the security just went, come, just come on through. It was like, they didn't even question it. They didn't even mm-hmm. bother to put it mm-hmm. through the security belt. They just said, just, just do what you need to do. Same when we were at the airport, they were just really great. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that, and that has been a very different experience than when I was in the States with my daughter, where they had us open up all the milk and then test it to see if there were drugs in it, which meant that all the milk spoiled on the flight like we couldn't actually give it to her because uh, anyway, it was, it was a whole, uh, basically we brought all this milk and then we had to throw it away. So I thought that that was actually really nice for once, you know, like yeah. it was actually a benefit. Yeah. Uh, no, th- th- I mean, uh, yeah, that's really bad what we experienced there in the States. And um, I think uh, in Italy and Sardinia, uh, at least I think, there is this at I found this attitude of like welcoming a lot like children and uh, you know being family friendly in their respect they, they're all like kind of children are a, a nice trick. thing to have around and uh, there is that sort of like kind of care towards children and mothers in a certain yes. way like it happened to me that like they were checking like just uh, as arrived at the airport and uh, we picked up our suitcase and then before exiting there was just a check-in like you know random checks and stuff and like as soon as they saw me with with the babies like no you, you just go you just go you know like of course you 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 need to go you need to rest you need a seat and think that sort of care but for example on the breastfeeding side um i feel that here there is much more that pressure from like the nhs for example and uh, from like the kind of international guidelines uh, from the World Health Organization that recommends that mothers breastfeed until like two, two and a half, um, whatever. And I remember that like when I was back home and I was still breastfeeding my daughter, I breastfed her until she was a year and a half. Um, Although obviously she weaned at six months, so she would 
eaten uh, all sorts say, my of son, He decided he was just like, no, one day he's just like, I'm not interested anymore. So it was, yeah, it and, was and his choice. Basically what happened to us. And by that time, so by the time that I went on field work and that, like it became, it wasn't any more survival for my daughter. It was more like uh, comfort and this, yeah. and that, which still was needed at that point. And then it was a few months later, then we stopped and we stopped very naturally. But I remember like the people back home, it's like, you still breastfeeding? It's like, you know, and it's like, still? Uh, but when do you stop? When are you going to stop? It's like, cause she's basically, she's walking, she's doing because there's still that mentality is like yeah you know you don't I can see that, that in the states for sure definitely you know yeah. whereas here there is more like this I found uh, anyway and but because I, I didn't have to experience it I, I didn't experience it myself I cannot talk for myself and definitely I would need um more data on this uh but I I do I do think and from the literature you know, you, you can see that uh, it, it is a disruption of um, kind of uh, the body and it is, uh, you know, something that is disruptive in, in the workplace. And even if there are accommodation where you, you get your child to come in and breastfeed them or whatever, there are some like places where you can go and breastfeed is still not it's still something that is not normalized as such and it it does uh it it does relate to you know like um women's or other bodies of uh, not being uh controlled and uh, being so mutable is that a word mm. changeable yeah i mean yeah, I mean, I think it, I think that's interesting. I mean, in some respects, it's almost like um, one is expected to control themselves if they're still breastfeeding their kid beyond a certain age. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, why can't you put a stop in that? Um, you know, with my daughter, there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's like anything. You have your first kid. There's things you think, okay, I wish I had done that differently. And there's yeah. definitely stuff I, I did differently with my son. And I'm so glad I did, did that. But I had to learn, right? Yeah. And with my daughter, um, I breastfed her until she was about nine months. But I was also pumping and I hated it. And mm-hmm. I was just, I was so miserable. And um, in the end, my mom was like, you need to stop because this is just making you unhappy. Yeah. And with my son, I didn't pump at all. And then I was happy. And then I looked forward to breast, you know, and, and then the whole process was different. But, you know, I, I, I breastfed him until he was ready. Whereas before with my daughter, I made the decision. I don't know if it was the right decision, but I just decided. And, and I don't know, but then again, anything before a year, I don't think people would have necessarily batted an eyelid, but I do think being in the UK, there is that pressure to like go as long as possible. Right. Yeah. Cause it's the best yeah. for the baby. I'm epileptic. So like, from my perspective, I'm going to do what's best for me. And I'm going to do what's best for my medical condition. Um, But I I noticed even if we talk about like the birthing process, there is a huge amount of pressure for women to give birth naturally in the UK, which Mm -hmm. blew my mind. I was like, no way in hell am I going without drugs. But it was almost like, well, you're 
almost like a bad person if you decide mm-hmm. to use drugs. Whereas mm-hmm. in the States, it's assumed you would want drugs and you have to specifically ask not to have not drugs, to. by which point everybody looks like you're crazy. Like, why would you deliberately want that? But here, I just, the UK, there's this sort of, I noticed pressure to go without drugs. And if you, you want to really, ad, you know, adopt the full welcome ceremony into motherhood, you need to, you know, experience this extreme amount of pain. Mm-hmm. And again, it was only because of my epilepsy on both occasions that I got moved up the queue in terms of being able to have access to this, to basically a medication so that I didn't have to go yeah. through the whole process. Mm-hmm. But it's only because of my my health condition. Yeah. And, and, th- and, and that's just so strange to me. You know, if I hadn't had epilepsy, I might have been expected to just go whole hog and and uh, uh, no, no. And against my will and around, you, you know, to, in my mind, that's against my will. That's against what I feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's a completely opposite experience from this, meaning that I, I feel that, um, I don't know, again, I, Probably my experience is also very um, biased or, you know, it's very much affected by the fact that I was pregnant and gave birth during lockdown, basically. So access to information was a bit uh, odd, um, a bit different than usual. And obviously the NHS was overburdened by other concerns um, arisen by by the pandemic. But... uh, I, I like I was very much I, I really got like my own information with the NCT groups and they're usually like they tell you um you know like the kind of pros and cons of every sort of scenario and uh you might I don't know if you would feel pressured but like I don't know in my NCT group for example we were all quite uh, you know, I think we were all feeling very free of doing whatever. Um, I think that what, like, to book an elective, what they call an elective C-section, then you will need to kind of have some sort of justification. That makes sense. Yeah. That definitely. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, um, I, I, I'm not sure. But I really wanted to go through, like, kind of the natural process. And I, I wanted it the least intervention I could get. And I, I like, as soon as, because I had my, my daughter was late, um, very late. Um, and I, I was just keeping her, keeping her, because I felt that everything was going okay, that I, it was fine. But I felt the pressure of, like, rushing up things and mm. medicalizing the situation, whereas I, I didn't really want it. And the experience I had was, like, that, it was a bit scary. Like the things that were telling me to convince me to rush things were very scary. And then it all went well, like I had planned a whole like water birth with midwives. Oh yeah. Birth plans don't exist. They don't know. It didn't go as planned, but I could manage eventually to do it closer to the closest to what I wanted in a sense. Although I felt much pressure of like, doing other things like take this take that take that i'm like no thanks and my husband was informed and uh, you know like the information i think that the issue really arises when there's not information accessible to you and you cannot make your own choices you know 
mm. and you you feel like you are um and I know that you cannot be an expert of everything, but the access to information that you need should be guaranteed at all okay. times. And that's yeah. where I think you really can be empowered of making decisions for yourself, yeah. you know, uh, because yeah, we had completely different experiences, like completely opposite. And I think that there is like, what well, is like allowed and uh, like the kind of information that you are given, you were given the information that you should be given about naturally somehow. And I was given the information like, Oh no, you should actually take this and take that. Whereas I didn't want to, mm. and I didn't, I didn't like, I, I had to sign things. Um, some things I didn't. I sign. had to sign things as well in order to get yeah. the um, epidural. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. But again, and it's like because in in a sense there is this kind of discourse and this assumption that like women have to go through pain and they don't they don't necessarily if they don't want to they don't want to they they I mean, don't be. get me wrong it was still painful like it's not like I just like slept through the whole thing but it was less painful than if I hadn't have been on it yeah and, and it's just so subjective and that's again like uh, this probably links nicely to to what i think that sh- policies and interventions should uh, be like it should be adaptable so whenever like if you add for example a period leave again and you leave it like just up, it just it needs to be applicable to different circumstances because this experiences that are subjective and there are so many like as many bodies that are out there as many different needs that are and policies guidelines whatever there is accommodations should be uh, adaptable and should be flexible you know should not be set in stone in one way because there's never going to be one way that fits all that's interesting. That is interesting because that's, you know, that's something that my, um, my, my, both, both my, my mom and my husband had, had mentioned this in, in varying ways. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't to be rude. It wasn't, it was just more like a thought, you know, just like as, as we were talking about this topic and they said, what role should the employer play, if at all, in your private life? Like, why does that, need to be their concern or their problem or their issue. And again, this wasn't meant to be derogatory, but it's a general question where, where, because it's a blurred line, you know, if you're going through cancer treatment, for example, and you don't really want anybody to know, but you also feel like you need to tell somebody because you know, you're going to be going through a lot it's a dance, right? So if you're going through something, whatever that is, in this case, we're talking about, you know, gynecological health conditions, breastfeeding, whatever that may be. Um, what role does the employer play in all of that? If you think about it, work is a major aspect of our life. Even like it takes so much of your time in your life that it becomes private. I don't think it can completely, it will, will it be detached from your private life because 
so pervasive and it shouldn't be and hopefully we're gonna get to the direction of like work a bit less <laughs> and live a bit more you know but the way it is uh i think there's just so much overlap that is uh there is some sort of like responsibility that the employer and the should have uh, if not at an individual level definitely at a structural level so systemically and structurally things need to be uh, more accessible and when i say more accessible i mean that and this is really backed up by by research and evidence that a lot of accommodation are really are not very costly and they benefit all you know, so mm. having workplace and a workplace, and I mean the structure and the system that um, is flexible uh, in very sense of the term, then it, it will definitely have benefits for all. And it doesn't need to be um, tailored. It can be actually adaptable and it can benefit all because, as I said before, you know, like the ideal worker, who can we actually place in the ideal worker you know like uh, a body you know or circumstances or you know you you mentioned cancer that can just kick in any time unfortunately you know and can just change your life and then having a workplace that already accommodates preemptively that preempt is that a word like but you don't have to ask for it but the workplace is already established and already organized to accommodate you then I think that's really where we want to to go to. But it is interesting that you're asking that because one thing that we're really seeing a lack of is accountability, is really a framework, like a framework for accountability uh, in relation to EDI. And What's EDI? Could you uh, sorry, equality, that? diversity and inclusion. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's like, who is accountable? Because there are guidelines, there are policies. Now we've got this amazing, really nice uh, British standard that came out um, just at the end of March uh, on menstrual health and, uh, and perimenopause in the workplace with a lot of like really good, nice, uh, practical even guidelines and um, suggestions and, and points. But this is like, it's, it's not mandatory. And uh, it's like, you can pick it or not. And therefore, it's like, there are not systems in place that really evaluates accountability and who should be accountable. And it's like, is it on the onus of the marginalized people to educate, to put in place accommodation? Or who, who is responsible? There's really no clear guidelines. So that's where we are trying to fill in. We're, we're trying to fill in that gap of like really um, understand and clarify um, accountability. Hmm. Um, that's a really good point. Um, you know, there were other questions that I gave you that um, if we had time, I, I would definitely dive into it. But I think what I'm going to do is just ask uh, to sort of round this out. If you were to give any advice to potential employees that are concerned about issues regarding menstrual health, 
uh, breastfeeding, uh, maternity issues in the workplace, how would you advise them in terms of, of preparing themselves or how to address those problems in their particular work environment? Educate themselves, listen to the lived experiences of people and be open to, uh, to change your own practices and assumptions. And then I think that's a good start already. Mm-hmm. And also um, we'll have plenty of information on our website for additional reading material. If, you, if you're in yeah, that situation yeah, yourself absolutely. and you would like to learn a little bit more. Um, but I have to say um, that's it from us for now at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Yara again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available on our website in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the show, then consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.